0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, we sort of just uh, wrapped up a mini-series on this Luke 21 passage um, called the it Discourse on the End Times, and it was some pretty dark stuff, you know, about the Antichrist and all of that. Uh, we're moving now into Luke 22. This is really sort of the final section of Luke's gospel, and you could argue it's the most important section because it's bringing to a head everything that was happening up to now in the gospels and highlighting what the whole story is about which is Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. And so we're entering into this final section of the book. And so for the scripture reading this morning, what I want to look at is Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. And it's really, in essence, the story of the first communion or Lord's Supper, uh, which we're going to take part in after the message. And so it reads in Luke 22, starting in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them, in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this Lord's table at the end of each month as an ordinance, a sacrament before you. And Yet, um, there is so much mystery to this table that we don't really understand. You have called on us not to take part in this table in an unworthy manner. And so examine our hearts this day and help us to understand the full meaning of what it means when we take this bread and take this cup. Give us eyes to see what Christ has done for us on the cross. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Most states that still practice the death penalty, um, there's this interesting tradition that is honored by most of them of granting the prisoner who is about to die uh, his request for, or her request, for a final meal, whatever it is that they want to eat as their final meal on this earth. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, who was responsible for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, as you all know, uh, was put to death in 2001. And the night before he was executed, he requested two pints of Ben and Jerry's mint chocolate chip ice cream. And that's what he ate for his final meal. Uh, Victor Fieger was put to death in 1963 for murder. He chose a very interesting last meal of a single olive with a pit still inside of it. And the reason he said he did this was that he hoped that after he, was die- he died and was buried, that that olive pit would bear fruit and sprout and grow into an olive tree, which was a symbol of peace. In 2011, as his last meal, Lawrence Russell Brower uh, did something very interesting. His list was ridiculous. He asked for two chicken fried strakes with gravy and onions, a triple bacon cheeseburger, an omelet, a bowl of fried okra with ketchup, a pound of barbecued meat with half a loaf of bread, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of ice cream, and a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three cans of root beer. So the state of Texas actually got all this for him in one huge feast. And at the time that he was given to eat it, he didn't touch any of the food and said that he wasn't hungry after all. It was a result of this guy that Texas got rid of this last meal tradition. <laughs> they said, forget this. Nobody gets to choose their last meal anymore. Today's message about, is about another last meal. It's the last meal of Jesus who would eat it with his disciples. We're told in this passage he longed for his last meal to be the Passover meal gathered around a table with his disciples. And in this meal, he would teach his followers the essence of the mission that he had come to accomplish, why he came to the earth to die. Within hours of eating this meal, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, and tortured. Before nightfall of the next day, Jesus will be hanging on a Roman cross, Dead, And so this meal becomes incredibly important for the story of the gospel, for us to understand what is really going on in the closing days of the life of Jesus. Before we get into the details of that meal, I want to set the stage a little bit more. From the very start of Jesus' public ministry, there's no doubt that he faced a lot of opposition from the religious leaders of his day. And when you start from the very beginning of the gospel accounts, what becomes very clear is that this opposition initially is characterized as much by confusion as it is by anger and hostility. It's as if this uneducated carpenter from Nazareth showed up on the scene teaching with unbelievable insight into scripture and authority. And the truth is the religious leaders didn't know what to do with this guy. They they didn't have any categories for him, and they didn't know how to respond to him. And so there is as much disorientation and confusion with Jesus as there is anger toward him. But as you trace the storyline in the Gospels, eventually the opposition becomes hardened. The battle lines become clearer, and the religious leaders make a final conclusion about this Jesus. And the conclusion they come to is this. The only solution to this Jesus problem is to kill him, is to kill him. He refuses to get in line with us. He refuses to join our side. He refuses to be silenced. And so they're left with no other alternative but to kill him. All the way back in Luke 9, we were told that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew he had to go there to die. And during his slow march to Jerusalem, which may have taken months, his popularity grew exponentially. And the rumors began to spread. Could this Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah, the long-awaited one, our Deliverer? And as he neared Jerusalem, the anticipation reached the crescendo. And you can understand why, Because he's doing all these miracles and making all of these claims. And he's sure acting like the Messiah. And now he is slowly walking to the capital city. And the people are doing the math in their head. And they're saying, he's going to declare his kingship. I mean, why else is he going to Jerusalem? And so it's no surprise that by the time he enters Jerusalem, there is this huge crowd awaiting to greet him, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic verse. And they attribute it to Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. At the start of Luke 22, we're told that the Passover holiday was approaching. And therefore, the chief priests and scribes have this desperation to try to kill Jesus in a timely manner. And the question is, what do the two things have to do with each other? This Passover holiday and the fear of these priests, the high priest. Well, this is what was happening. Jesus arrived in the capital city of Jerusalem at a time when literally hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims were descending on the city in order to celebrate the passover feast and he arrives in the city and the first act that he does is he cleanses the temple chases out all of the merchants and the money changers which was basically the money-making machine for these high priests and he begins to teach in the temple monday tuesday wednesday daily he goes to the temple And he teaches with a boldness and authority that's almost unparalleled now. Jesus is clearly bringing this battle with these religious leaders to a head. And he's claiming a level of authority that he really, you could say, he hasn't done up to now. And so you can understand why these religious leaders were terrified. It was as if a perfect storm was being formed. All of the pieces were coming together in this puzzle. It's as if a great bonfire had been built. And all that was needed was a single match to set the entire country on fire. Jesus seemed to recognize this danger as well when he entered Jerusalem. So what's interesting is if you look at Luke 21, verse 37 to 38, it says this. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So in the daytime, he is in the city. But at the nighttime, he slips away into the surrounding countryside. Seems like he stayed at Bethany with his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the reason he does this is because he knows at nighttime, when the crowds are no longer there, the city is not safe for him anymore. And so because he knew his time had not yet come, every night he sneaks out of the city and returns into the countryside. In verses 3 to 6, it is revealed that Judas is the one who is ultimately going to betray, betray Jesus, handing him over to the priests. And, and it's, it's utterly baffling, isn't it? It's hard to believe that this guy could spend three years living with Jesus, hearing his teaching and seeing everything that Jesus did, and at the end of that three years, betray him. Let him be put to death. The question is, how could anyone be that spiritually dead? That you could actually live with Jesus for three years and then betray him? Well, one of the things we're told is that Satan... Judas. Now, that sounds an awfully lot like Judas really didn't have any say in the matter. He was just like a puppet. And like a demon-possessed person that was being possessed by the ultimate demon, Satan. When Satan entered him, he had his way with Judas and did whatever he wanted. Um, one of the things that I think Satan's presence here clearly reminds us is What is happening here on that day was part of a much larger cosmic spiritual battle that started from the very opening pages of Scripture in creation in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I think we have to be very cautious about saying that Judas was just like a puppet who had no control over his actions. In the book of Acts, we see some similar language when Satan influences this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And that tradition in that days of the early church where that people were selling their land and then in an enormous act of generosity, laying the total sale amount at the feet of the apostles so that that could become communal money and help the poor and feed the community of the believers. But Ananias and Sapphira sell their land and they lie about the amount and end up keeping a portion and saying, here's the full amount. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? You know, here, despite in acknowledgment by the Apostle Peter that Satan had an involvement in this, ultimately it was Ananias and Sapphira who were held responsible for the lie that they committed against the Holy Spirit. We find this interesting commentary about Judas in John's gospel. In chapter 12, verse 4 to 6, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. What we learn about Judas seems to be basically this, that despite everything that he had experienced by being with Jesus, there never seemed to be a point where Judas actually believed, where he actually took seriously the claims of Jesus. Instead, what we find was that his true love, his true God, was money. And so he was constantly working the angles to figure out how he could personally profit from this movement that Jesus was starting. And one of the ways he would do that was that he would steal money from the purse whenever the others Weren't looking. I want to say this before I start getting into the unpacking of this communion table itself. What we are witnessing in these religious leaders and in this disciple Judas is the hardness of the human heart. It's the hardness of the human heart. I think one of the greatest fallacies that we have as Christians is to think that the main reason why people don't believe in Jesus is ignorance because they just don't get it. They don't understand the gospel because I think in our flawed logic, we think this. If anyone truly understood the truth, they would follow the truth. It's just that they don't understand. But here's the thing is that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the sickness of the human soul goes far deeper than ignorance of the truth. We give ourselves too much credit, thinking that if we only recognize truth, we would follow it. But we find example after example in the Bible where the truth is staring a person point blank, and they choose a different path in their life. The Bible makes it very clear that a lack of knowledge is rarely the biggest hurdle For someone to follow Jesus, Judas had a level of intimacy with Jesus that most of us could only long for. He witnessed Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, walking on water. He saw Jesus raise the dead a couple times. And yet, in the end, none of that mattered to Judas or these religious leaders because they had their own agenda for what they wanted out of life. And so he gives up everything that Jesus offered to him for 30 pieces of silver. That's like half a year's wage. That's not trivial money. But is that really something worth selling your soul for? John chapter 3, verse 19 to 20 says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the verdict. Light has come into the world, And the world chose the darkness rather than the light. And here's the thing. That's talking about your heart and mine. It's not talking about a bunch of horrible Pharisees in the days of Jesus or this utterly depraved man, Judas Iscariot. John chapter 3 is talking about the condition of your heart and my heart without God's grace to help us. All of us would rather choose the cover of darkness rather than come into the light and have our sin and our brokenness exposed. Do you know that about yourself? We would rather tank our marriage and watch our spouse slowly shrivel and die spiritually under our influence than to cry for help and say, I cannot lead this family. The same goes with our children and on and on. What I'm saying is, without God's grace, all of us would rather crash and burn, being the captain of our ship, and go down sinking with that ship, than to cry for God for help. Proverbs 3, five to seven, a very famous passage says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. I memorized this verse since high school and it sounds so poetic, but do you understand how hard it is to do this? Do you understand that every fiber in your being fights against not trusting in your own understanding. Because the truth is in our prideful stubbornness. We always think we're the smartest guy in the room, don't we? We always think we know best for our lives. Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. That is the... Fundamental battle lines that are being drawn here. The war that is waging in the human heart. There is this way that seems right to me under my own wisdom. And then there is a way that God offers me that seems utterly illogical in my wisdom. And I'm invited to make a choice as to which path I'm going to choose in life. And like I said, every instinct within you is going to argue that you know best, even more than God. And in the end, that stubborn arrogance, it says, is only going to lead you to death. Matthew 27, verse 3 to 5 says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed Innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. What a tragic end to a tragic life. I'm sure Judas thought that he was the smartest guy in the room. But in the end, he was the one. Left hanging from a tree. Uh, Let me say this, and I'll move on to the actual Lord's Supper. As horrible as these religious leaders in Israel were in the days of Jesus, I have to give them credit for at least one thing. At least they understood the radical claims of Jesus and the danger that he represented. They understood the threat that Jesus posed, and they killed him for it. Sadly, in our day, I want to argue, for many of us, we don't even understand the radical claims of Jesus. We've domesticated him to the point where he no longer poses a threat to our way of life, so that we can comfortably say that we're followers of Jesus, and yet insist that he asks nothing of us. But in that sense, there may be a spiritual insight that these religious leaders had that even we don't have. They at least saw Jesus as a dangerous man, and they killed him for it. They understood that Jesus said, I want it all. I demand it all of you. Well, let's get to this Passover and unpack this a little bit. What happens next in verses 10 to 13 reads almost like a spy novel. Jesus says to Peter and John, set the Passover table for us so we could have it. And he says, go into the city and a man is going to approach you carrying a water jug. Follow him and he's going to take you to his house. When you get to his house, ask him, where can we have this last supper, this Passover meal? And he's going to show you to a place and set it up there. And sure enough, it happens exactly as Jesus says. This is very similar to how they find the donkey, the cult of the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, right? Uh, I I said it before, I think, but the classic scene I think about is in Star Wars, you know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, you know, uh, he plays the Jedi mind trick on the the stormtroopers, right? Um, And that's exactly like what's happening here. And why are the gospel writers so insistent on giving these details? I think it's basically one thing. It is to say that Jesus was in total control of his destiny. He wasn't swept up in some political intrigue and murdered by a bunch of enemies out of his control. But every step of the way, the message of the gospel is Jesus was orchestrating Everything. And because he knew that his time had not yet come, though his assassination plot or his plot to get him killed was already in motion, no arrest would be made until they could have this Passover meal because this secret room shows up out of nowhere under his design and there's a provision for them to have this Last Supper. Kent Hughes says this, From the onset of this near final event, we see that Jesus was in control of his destiny. He was not caught like a rag doll on the relentless gears of history. He was not done in by a satanic plot. Jesus would accomplish everything he set out to do on his own schedule. John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18 says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Do you hear that clearly? He says, no one is going to put me to death. I am going to lay down my life willingly as a sacrifice for this world. In verses 14 to 16, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined a table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The words that Jesus uses to describe his emotions are very strong. In this ESV version, it's translated as earnestly desired. It describes this deep and intense longing for something. And the question is, why did Jesus feel so strongly about this meal that he was going to eat as his last supper? And it's because everything that Jesus came to the earth to do was represented in that meal, this communion meal. And it was as if to say, if the disciples don't understand what's happening at this table, they don't understand anything about my mission. And so this meal became such an important moment for Jesus as he used it to teach them what his purpose was. On this earth. In John chapter 13 verse 1 it says this. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come. For him to leave this world. And go to the father. Having loved his own. Uh, his, who were in the world. He now showed them. The full extent of his love. That's the explanation. That John gave. Now of course John's focus in. Chapter 13 is. Washing of the disciples feet. But I think that he also had this communion meal in mind when he said he wanted to show them the full extent of his love for them. In verses 17 to 18, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, here is the confusing thing Luke is the only gospel that includes two cups of wine two drinkings. All the other Gospels only have one. This first cup in verses 17 to 18 was not actually the wine of the communion. It was part of the Passover Seder that all Jews observed. As that many of you may know, the Passover was a holiday that Jews observed to, that they still do observe to remember God's deliverance when they were slaves in Egypt. There were these 10 plagues that would result in Pharaoh finally letting the Israelites go. And this last plague of the 10 was the killing of the firstborn in every family. And so every Jewish family was instructed to kill a lamb and paint their doorposts with blood. And because of that blood, when God would come over Egypt and start to kill the firstborn, If he saw that blood on the threshold, he would pass over it and spare that family. And that's why it was called the Passover. And that night, the Israelites were commanded to eat the lamb, to roast it and eat it. And then they were also commanded to eat unleavened bread, flat bread, without any yeast in it. And 1,500 years later, by the time that Jesus came, this Passover ceremony had become significantly more elaborate. They incorporated other elements to it. Like, for example, I don't know if any of you have ever had an opportunity to participate in a Jewish Passover Seder. But they'll eat bitter, bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitterness of their slavery. And they eat this sort of stewed fruit that looks like this kind of gross mush, you know, uh, to remind them of the bricks that they had to make when they were slaves in Egypt and on and on. And in that Seder for the Passover, there are four wine cups that are drunk. And so this cup that they're drinking in verses 17 to 18 is one of these Passover wine cups. But then they get to the bread, and this is where Jesus, in essence, is saying, this is like the final Passover, but the first communion. I am going to take this Passover meal that you've been doing for centuries and I'm going to give an entirely new meaning to it based on what I'm going to do in a couple of days here. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. Now before we get to that, The unleavened bread is referred to in the Passover meal as the bread of affliction. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste so that all the days of your life may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. And so what their explanation is by Moses is to say, When you eat this bread, you remember your suffering when you were slaves, Years ago. But Jesus says, when you eat this bread under this new ceremony that I am creating, it doesn't represent the suffering of your forefathers in Egypt. It represents my own body that is in a day going to be broken for you. And then he takes this cup, verse 20, and it says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus explains that this wine, in the Seder, it actually represents things like Thanksgiving and celebration and all these things. But in this communion ceremony that he is now instituting, he says, it actually represents my blood that is going to be spilled for you in this new covenant that I am making. It's interesting if you read the Old Testament that blood was everywhere in Israelite religion. In that way you could say it's, it was a very bloody religion. Um, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 5 to 8, it records this event. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. And the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, do you, do you actually hear what's going on here? That was a pretty gruesome scene, is he basically takes these bowls of blood, dips it in these tree branches, and starts spattering it on the people. So now they're getting this wash of blood on them and saying, there you go, the covenant. Because in the Old Testament, every single covenant that was made between God and his people required blood. There was blood involved. It must have been a pretty gruesome scene. I know I would not want to have that happen to me. Can you imagine us all lining up and just going like this? And you're just getting ready to be sprinkled with this animal blood? Um, but it was a graphic and necessary reminder to the Israelites. Every covenant has a price. The shedding of blood. Even the Passover celebration required blood. It required the death of a lamb. And now through this communion supper, Jesus opens his disciples' eyes and say, every demonstration of blood that came before me pointed forward to the cross and the blood that I would shed as payment for your sins. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His blood shed for our guilt. In instituting this ordinance of the Lord's table, he says to them, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Now, why does Jesus say this? If you read it wrongly, it, it, it almost sounds like the plea of a needy parent, doesn't it? Because our parents do this, right? Don't forget everything that I did for you, right? Um, do you know how many dirty diapers I had to change when you were a baby? Have, you, have any of you heard that from your parents? How much money we spent on you over the years, right? Right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Remember me. Don't forget me. I don't think so. When Jesus tells us to observe this communion as an act of remembrance, it's not because he is needy. It is because it's more for our benefit than his. We need this communion table so that daily, regularly, we are reminded that our righteousness Rest solely on what Jesus has done for us because we so easily forget our brokenness and our need for God's mercy. This is a passage I've shared, on a, a verse I've shared on a number of times in unpacking the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Here is the truth, even here at ICC as a church family. Some of us, let's just be honest here, have had our sins exposed more publicly than others. It's just the nature of sin, right? In the different ways that we can fail and mess up, the truth is some of us has just done so more spectacularly than others, right? And so we've witnessed one another crash and burn. Um. It's like the tax collectors and the prostitutes during the days of Jesus. There wasn't much point trying to act like righteous people (laughs) because everyone knew who they were. There was no disguising it. But here's the other side of what Paul is saying in this letter to Timothy. But the truth is for some people, they fly under the radar and they look like good people. And for all intents and purposes, they look like they're the better people. But the truth is, their sins only trail behind them because they're not as obvious to everyone. But as he suggests, there is a day of reckoning coming when everyone's sins will be exposed. And there's almost the grace if you get to that day of judgment and it's already been exposed, you know? It's like, ta-da, it's okay, you know? Everyone already knew this about me. But for some of us, I think it's going to be a pretty terrifying day, right? Dr. Steve, really? <laughs> but the truth is, that's the gospel message, right? All of us are sinners. All of us are broken. It's just that some of us, our sins are more obvious and more public than others. But what This communion table represents is that all of us are in need of the mercy and the grace that is represented in it. I think the hope is that all of us, that is my sincere prayer for all of you here at ICC, is that all of us would get connected and honest with that brokenness before that day comes. Peter Schizero was one of these Christians who lived in this illusion that everything was okay. After all, he was a pastor, right? But the truth is, he represented one of these people whose sins trailed behind him, whose sins were more subtle and not as obvious. And as the founding pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens in New York City, he thought that he was doing pretty okay. He thought he was living a good life. Until one day... His whole world seemed to come crashing down on him. He recounts that unbearable day in his opening chapter of his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. And I apologize, this is a bit of an extended quote here, but I think it's helpful for us as he confesses with these words. Pete, I'm leaving the church. My wife, Jerry, had muttered quietly. I sat still too stunned to respond. I can't take any more of this stress. The constant crisis, she continued. Jerry had been more than patient. I had brought home constant pressure and tension from church. Year after year, now the woman I had promised to love, just as Christ loved the church, was exhausted. We had experienced eight unrelenting years of stress. I'm not doing it anymore, she concluded. This church is no longer life for me. It is death. When a church member says I'm leaving the church, most pastors don't feel very good. But when your wife of nine years says it, your world is turned upside down. We were in the bedroom. I remember the day well. Pete, I love you, but I'm leaving the church. She summarized very calmly. I no longer respect your leadership. I was visibly shaken and didn't know what to say or do. I felt shamed, alone, and angry. I tried raising my voice to intimidate her, That is out of the question, I bellowed. All right, so I've made a few mistakes. But she calmly continued, It's not that simple. You don't have the guts to lead, to confront the people who need to be confronted. You don't lead. You're too afraid that people will leave the church. You're too afraid of what they'll think about you. I was outraged. I'm getting to it, I yelled defensively. I'm working on it. For the last two years, I really had been trying but somehow still wasn't up to it. Good for you, but I can't wait anymore, she replied. There was a long pause of silence. Then she uttered the words that changed the power balance in our marriage permanently. Pete, I quit. It is said that the most powerful person in the world is one who has nothing to lose. Jerry no longer had anything to lose. She was dying on the inside, and I hadn't listened to or responded to her calls for help. This church is no longer life for me. It's death. She softly continued, I love you, Pete. But the truth is, I would be happier separated than married. At least then you would have to take the kids on weekends. Then maybe you'd even listen. She was calm and resolute in her decision. I was enraged. A good Christian wife married to a Christian and a pastor, I may add, does not do this. I understood at that moment why a husband could fly into a rage and kill the wife he loves. She had asserted herself. She was forcing me to listen. I wanted to die. This was going to require me to change. And so Schizero writes of how he went through a whole whirlwind of reactions and emotions, of denial and rage and self-pity and shame. And it was only after that battle in his heart that he finally took the first steps of embracing his brokenness and asking for help. One of his journal entries during this turbulent time reveals his first confessions around his acknowledgement of his helplessness and the fact that he couldn't fix himself or fix his marriage. He says, Lord, I can see the promised land on the other side of the Red Sea. Wholeness, a joyful marriage and family, joy in serving you, walking in the role you have for me in leadership. But I have no idea how to open the Red Sea to get there. To you, God, if you do, could you please open it? This is the cry of a desperate man who has for the first time confronted his own inadequacy and says, I can't fix this thing. And despite his deep feeling of humiliation and failure, he consented to getting professional marriage counseling. And through that journey, Schizero began to discover how much he was lying to not only the people in his life, but even to himself regarding the true condition of his heart. And I want to say, this is the mercy that is offered to every one of us at this Lord's table. The truth is, in this room, some of you know how broken you really are. But the truth is also that some of you have no clue of your brokenness. And you think that generally you're a pretty good person. But what the gospel says, what Jesus needed to so intensely communicate to his disciples, is every one of you needs my broken body and my poured out blood. Every one of you is broken and utterly helpless to fix yourselves. And so he says, come to this table again and again to remind yourself that you need me. Jeremiah, the great prophet, writes of this new covenant in chapter 31 Verse 33 to 34 of his book, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Let's pray.